listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to Professor of Science Communication and Future Media, Andy Mia. I'm convinced that there's a lot of creativity that goes alongside with being a gamer and occupying those sort of creative open-ended worlds. Andy shared his insights into why competitive video gaming has experienced a rapid growth in popularity, how digital technology is changing the way traditional sports are played, and how gamification looks set to transform the world of health and fitness. You can view a full video version of this conversation and Futures Podcast. Now, over the last decade, digital technology has had a massive impact on the world of sports. Athletes are able to collect more data than ever on their performance, while spectators are able to use a myriad of tools to engage with live sports in new and exciting ways. But nowhere has technology shown its dominance more than in aiding in the rise of the popularity of competitive video game playing, otherwise known as esports. Today, Esports has fast become a multi-million dollar industry, driving new innovations that are redefining how we think about the social function of sports and the kind of individuals who participate. At the forefront of understanding this new world is Andy Mir, an academic who has dedicated his career to exploring the convergence of sports and digital culture. Andy recently made the bold claim that the future of all sports is esports. Now, this might seem odd, but already we're starting to see sports become mixed reality experiences, where the line between the physical and virtual is becoming increasingly blurred. So Andy, why do you feel that esports is such an important cultural phenomena and one that deserves such close study? Well, I think it's actually all-encompassing. It's it's a new generation of content consumers and creators that are transforming how we engage with each other. What we've seen over the last five years is the rise of the streaming content. So people watching other gamers stream their content. And alongside that, we've seen the growth of the professionalization of esports. So now we have even sort of TV series on major broadcasting channels about the, the sort of subject of esports. And all those things together, couple with the fact that the economic foundation of the world of elite sports is predicated on television, this medium that is quickly dying or at least transforming into something completely different. And all of those things combined, I think, along with our desire to live digital lives, has really sowed the seeds for a world where the future of sports is, is esports for sure. And, and I think actually what's happened at the highest level of elite sports is to bring those two worlds closer together. So how do we define esports? I mean, are esports even real sports? Oh, it's such a controversial question, Luke. And and it's funny because you, I often have debates with people where the world of esports are so fed up with the question that they reject it outright. But I think it's relevant to ask still because, you know, we're in the business of defining what we do because it helps us demarcate what we're not doing. And of course, the world of esports is not dissimilar. So there are people in, in sort of online poker that want to become esports and many people in the esports world aren't too keen on that. So it is a hotly contested field and subject. But I think that a 
reasonable definition is simply competitive computer game playing. And especially where the emphasis on how we reward people is their skill rather than chance. And those are some key factors in it. But that definition for me is absolutely dynamic. It's evolving around the technologies. And I guess for me, what drew me into the subject really is the fact that our interface to engage with each other, to engage with the things we like doing is changing. You know, my son who's 10 years old is still learning computers at school where they have a mouse to, to navigate the computer <laughs> and the keyboard. And of course, we know these things won't be around in 20 years time. You just won't engage with things in that way. And so I've been very excited by seeing what's happening in the sort of immersive technology sphere where we're seeing a, a new generation of esports in the making, I think, at the moment. I mean, you've controversially said the future of all sports is esports. So um, what did you mean by this when, when you said that? Well, do you know what? Last year, in January 2020, the International Olympic Committee, this major sort of guardian of elite uh -huh. sports, had its sort of annual meeting. And one of its senior leaders said that if the Olympic movement doesn't figure out its esports strategy, they'll be taken to the cleaners. And I think that what he meant by that is that that economic base that underpins elite sports, which is mostly the sale of television rights is changing dramatically. We know now that, that the majority of young people are actually watching streaming content rather than watching TV. So if you want to make sure that you safeguard your future as a sport, you have to look at what's happening in that world. And alongside that, I think we also see incredible amounts of innovation that are happening in the world of esports. I think back to the, the League of Legends World Finals in China last November, where we see this remarkable production combining augmented reality with performance and projection mapping to stage what was, I think, one of the most groundbreaking opening ceremonies of any event, never mind just an esports event. I mean, this is, a, this is the crazy thing. Digital technology is changing sports in, in so many ways. It's changing the way in which they're played, they're watched, and they're understood. So what sort of impact is it having on, on the spectator, on the athlete, and, and the broadcaster? Well, I think that's also in flux. You know, when I guess I think back to the origins of sport, we go back perhaps to ancient Greece and the ancient <laughs> Olympic Games, the design of a kind of amphitheatre or an Olympic stadium is a sort of a, a, a proposition of an interaction between a performer and a spectator. And that is one of the things that's fundamentally changed over the last 20 years, for sure. We've seen the growing use of social media to engage audiences, the desire to find new sorts of experiences through different screens experiences. And that's the sort of thing that the elite brands are working with. So exploring how you can create content in virtual reality or use a whole range of immersive wearable technologies to bring people into the heart of the action. I think we've seen the growth of elite sport alongside the growth of the media. There's, they're intertwined and have been for the last century. And part of that, in fact, the heart of it is the desire of the journalist to lead people into the experience. What is it like to break a world record? And how does the narrative, the storyteller of the journalist bring people into that world? I think immersive technologies are making that happen and pushing the frontiers of that relationship. And there's a great example actually from Formula E racing, which is the electric car version of Formula One. And since its inception, really, they've been experimenting really creatively with digital. So they've had things like fan boosts where the spectators can 
cheer for their favorite driver and that driver receives a performance boost in their car during the race. Last season, the Formula E race introduced a Mario Karting line. So if the driver took a particular route and followed it a bit like the arrows on Mario Karting, they'd get a performance boost in the car. So these principles are coming out of the computer gaming world and I think are having a big impact on both what we think of as sport, but also how we engage with it as spectators. I mean, it's so controversial what is sport and what isn't sport. I mean, recently we've heard the idea that they may allow skateboarding in the Olympics. Andy, do you think we'll ever see uh, Super Mario Bros in the Olympics? <laughs> I do. And actually, skateboarding <laughs> is in the Olympics. So Tokyo this year, oh. we've got Sky Brown from the UK, who's hopefully, if everything goes to plan, one of our great gold prospects there and a remarkable young athlete. But that's true. That certainly the Olympic program itself is this kind of frontier of what counts as being a sport has always mm. been in flux, actually. It's never been sort of fixed. Back when the modern Olympic Games began, one of the earliest forms of competition was in artistic practices. So sculpture, painting. And, and so how we reward excellence is really what this is all about. And I think that's where the arguments that underpin sort of the desire to bring esports into that elite sports world are, are pretty similar. You know, the virtues of being an elite sports player are similar to being an elite esports player. And those worlds are slowly getting closer together, I think. But uh, but certainly, I think that many, as you can imagine, many people in that world are trying to really hold the hold the line on, on where they draw, I guess, esports into that world, partly because we know historically that gaming has really see, been seen as oppositional to physical activity. There's been a lot of moral mm. panic about gaming culture, a lot of anxiety about the way in which it may lead people, especially young people, into sedentary lifestyles. So gaming historically has been really a challenge for anyone working in sort of physical activity or sport, but that's what's changing. And I think esports is helping usher in that new era. Popular media is fascinated by gamers, but not all the press is positive. As you just said there, there's things like burnout, depression, anxiety. All of these things are associated with esports, whereas in traditional sports, these effects are often mitigated by having an active and healthy lifestyle. But how are the esports community actually addressing some of those issues? I mean, that's a really great point, Luke, but I would say also that the, the sports world has created this myth that somehow being an elite athlete is just this virtuous healthy pursuit. There's a wonderful documentary from a couple of years ago called The Weight of Gold that talked about how many elite athletes, often those that are the gold medal winners, suffer greatly from mental health issues. And, and it covers the story of many of those athletes. So I think that elite sports are also going through a, a sort of revolution of realizing that actually that these virtues that are presumed to be there as a result of what we see as being ultra healthy, ultra capable, in fact, are much more complex things. They're far more multifaceted than that. And let's remember as well that 99% of the elite athletes that are out there aren't making a lot of money, aren't winning any medals, and are still on that struggle and that journey. So I think elite sports uh, and elite esports have a lot in common in that respect. But what we've seen over the last probably just five years now is the first wave of role models in elite in esports. It's the first time we see the sort of professionalization of this practice. And it's really profound, I think. I mean, one of the great examples that I think comes from 2019 when uh, 
when in in the sort of latest iteration of of the Turing test, we saw Google's Alpha Star computer play the world's best uh, StarCraft esports player. And of course, as with AlphaGo, as with Deep Blue back in 1997, the computer won. So esports are pushing the boundaries technologically uh, that I think the waves of which are sort of perforating across societies in remarkable ways. So, so in your mind, Andy, do you believe that serious gamers should also be considered elite athletes? I do. It's a it's a, um, a very careful sort of argument to make because, in fact, many people in the e- in the esports world are not entirely comfortable with being categorised as sports. And I think there's a mm. there's some really good arguments for that. I know that certainly in the UK we have the British Esports Association, and one of the anxieties about badging esports as sport is the possibility that young people may say, well, I'm being an athlete by just doing esports and may leave behind these other sports. So I sort of advocate a kind of mixed reality experience where you combine these two things together. And um, and actually what we're seeing with many of the esports players that are out there is that to be good at the sport, much like to be good at Formula One racing or anything that seems on the surface to be a quite sedentary practice, in fact, requires an incredible amount of physical and mental preparation to be good at. So although we're seeing young people often just moving mice and keyboards or controllers on these big events, in order to get to that point, in order to make the number of decisions they need to make every minute, they have to do a lot of physical preparation. And that, for me, is in fact a more a healthier lifestyle. I think the, the problem we have a little bit historically is that esports, not, not, not just esports, but sports are seen as the kind of pinnacle of a healthy lifestyle. In actual fact, they're often not. Many athletes cease to compete or cease to engage with physical activity later in their life because it's been so all-consuming in that early part. So potentially the esports athlete or player or whatever we want to call it will end up being a healthier role model than the sports uh, elite athlete at the moment. <laughs> Well, well, there we have it. I'm, I'm going to be interested to uh, to follow that and see if that that comes to pass. I mean, in researching this, I was surprised to hear that there's there's people who do things like posture and finger training. I mean, there's this whole field of folks who train people to be elite gamers. And how can some of that knowledge of how to hold yourself in front of a machine and and how to use computers in the most effective way, how can that knowledge be applied to all of us, especially during this time of COVID where it feels like we're, we're constantly tied to our shiny glowing rectangles? It's a great question. I think it partly speaks to the broader environment in which we find ourselves where everything is sort of screen based. And one of the things I've found, even from the sort of advocates and companies that are underpinning this world of esports, companies like Twitch that are trying to advocate healthier ways of gaming. In fact, I think a lot of the esports world are very anxious to encourage their players or their community to not play more hours, but to play better hours. And that means combining it with a whole range of other activities. So I think finding that balance between the two and making sure that you can optimize your performance is crucial. I mean, it, one of the things that's really interesting we're exploring at the moment is trying to see if we can bring esports into leisure centers. Because we know we've got a problem with getting young people into sports centers, being physically yeah. active. And maybe if we bring a partnership between these two worlds where you can perhaps trade 
physical activity in the gym with credits in the esports facility. That might be a way of getting those two worlds together. But, and this is a really big but, I think, the future of the gym has to be the integration of esports technologies. It's clear with environments like Les Mills and the growing sort of gamification of exercise, this is what we're looking at. So I could quite imagine that a big part of our future of physical activity is where these two worlds collide. I mean, that sounds very much like that episode of Black Mirror. It it feels like gamification really is the thing that's at the core of all of this, the transformation of watching into playing. So how has gamification bled into all forms of sport, health and fitness? I think it really is, Luke. I think that's very central to also that economic proposition, the realization in the sports world that even even though they've got these remarkable products with elite athletes breaking world records, pushing the boundaries of human capabilities through what Hmm. they do, even if they're right in front of the spectator in a live stadium situation, that spectator is still looking at their phone for half of the time that they're there. And, And certainly with television, even more so. So I think that the The sports world, in its pursuit of increased audience engagement, motivated by the proliferation of social media platforms where they want to drive their content, have realized that if they want to recapture the eyeballs of these spectators, whether live or remote, they have to make it a kind of immersive experience. And I think that gaming is the way to do that. We we know that if we're playing a game, and I play a lot of chess in my house, or my son's a great chess player, really loves it, as we play loads of chess. And if you're playing chess, you can't do anything else. And it's true of many games, I think. It keeps your focus and attention on that product or that experience. And it's fun. It transforms something that's often quite a sedentary or passive experience into something that's far more enriching. And I think so many things are happening in that ecosystem of the audience experience that that's what's really motivating the content creators and indeed the brands that underpin these experiences. One of the great things that happened over the COVID period was a huge amount of experimentation with computer gaming and and virtual environments. One of the first was the Australian Grand Prix that moved into an entirely online proposition. I watched this on YouTube and I swear, (laughs) because we know that, that... Formula One racing in computer games is already heavily modeled on the Uh physical reality of the cities. So when you watch it, the graphics are so good and the modeling so good that it feels like you're watching a a TV broadcast, a televisual broadcast. But uh, but what was also nice about it was they also brought together the gamers and the drivers together in in a race competing alongside each other. And it did really well. And I think these are still early days for those sorts of products, but I think we'll see a lot more of those. Now, when we look at gamers, there's there's an obvious concern, which is one of antisocial behavior, violence and mental health. Because if you're an elite gamer, of course, you have all this training and, and you're, you're, as you just argued there, you might be physically fitter in the longer term. But folks who look up to these gamers who might be amateur gamers, I mean, there's still the issue that they have when uh, there might be gaming disorders, for example. I know the World Health Organization described the characteristics of gaming disorder as the significant impairment in personal 
personal, family, social, educational, occupational, or other areas of functioning that would normally have uh, been evident for at least 12 months or more. So the, the WHO is, is really concerned about the risk to amateur gamers who look up to these pro gamers, want to become them, but just don't have that skill to to go into that pro level. So what do we do um, for, for those folks? You're really absolutely right, Luke. It's a huge issue. And I think what we've seen from the world of esports is a real distancing from that sort of problem. And I think it makes sense on one level in that if you are playing computer games competitively in a social setting, the risks of those sorts of habits uh, emerging is significantly less. Mm -hmm. But we have to take seriously that relationship between the esports professionals and players and the amateur watchers or gamers. Because, and I think it's not, again, it's not dissimilar from sports world. We have to think about how active spectators are, how much sort of physical activity spectators get out of their their sort of enjoyment of elite sports and look at those sort of figures. But I suppose what we do know is that if you can make the transition from being a casual gamer into being even an amateur esports player, so where you're in this social setting and where you are working with others to produce events and take part in competitions, then that can reduce the risks of that I think the WHO is concerned about with gaming disorder. And it's partly because, again, we know that the the routes into addictive habits and, and things that are destructive for life often happen as a result of isolation. And if you're working within a social setting where people are able to support you, check how you're doing, then I think we do diminish that considerably. So I would say that a key strategy to reduce the prospects of of gaming disorder is in fact to move gaming habits into social settings. And and even, I mean, I'm blown away by just how much sort of online gaming there is and how big some of these communities are. But I know that certainly speaking to my university students, and we have a sport esports society at the university, they're all incredibly creative innovative they're they're doers they get they get productions done really well and i think that by being part of that community it just allows them to lead a healthier approach to their own gaming habits I mean, you've gone one step further, Andy, and actually suggested about putting the NHS into these virtual worlds, basically giving users access to mental health support from professionals whilst they're online, whilst they're gaming, or even whilst they're scrolling social media. So how do you imagine that might look? Well, I think we're in a real challenging situation with regards to not just social media, but those immersive platforms where we're either watching streams or gaming ourselves. And the problem is that they're entirely divorced from those unhealthy habits and the treatment of them by the healthcare professionals. It's a peculiar thing to me that we don't have any sort of presence of healthcare professionals within those spaces. And it's interesting, if you look at what's happened with social media over the last maybe five to 10 years, a growing expectation to think about the risks that exist to vulnerable people. We see platforms like TikTok where that's becoming incredibly prominent as a concern. And uh, and what they've done really is create their own sort of digital well-being uh, aspects to their platforms. And I mean, let's be frank, they don't work terribly well. <laughs> and so 
I would rather that we had a presence of uh, in the UK, the NHS, but healthcare professionals there that are able to support people because the consequence of not doing that means that there's no support whatsoever. And uh, and I know that in the UK we've set we set up a sort of gaming addiction sort of clinic in the UK in London, and that's trying to address some of these things. But you have to address the problem in the environment where it's taking place. That's where the support is needed, where you can manage and observe those risks and work with people on on developing them. And it's interesting, you might have seen last July, the WHO released their first version of their digital healthcare worker. And this is an AI back sort of avatar that you log on to the website and have a conversation with this entity that will hopefully help you to um, step away from your addictive habits and lead a healthier lifestyle. And the proposition is quite interesting, I think, because it, it's essentially predicated on the idea that when you do have an addiction to smoking or whatever it might be, when you go to see your, your GP or your healthcare professional, you may not be entirely honest about how well you're doing with your habit. But with a computer, you can tell it what you like and you can be completely upfront with it. So I think we're beginning to see increasingly within the healthcare sector, the integration of these sorts of things that perhaps um, the gaming world isn't quite that isn't quite there yet. But for me, the major gain of it is in fact, the broader conversation that would occur between esports game developer publishers and the healthcare professionals, because there's something really, I think, disingenuous about those, that, that world, which is to say that, of course, they want more people to spend more hours in the game. And of course, there are aspects of the game design that lead people into that transaction and to do so in a way that's often completely unlimited. So unless we are really honest about how those game design features affect the behaviors and inclinations of its users, then I think we're we're not really attending to the problem or in fact being honest about that, how we deal with it. It feels like we're at such early days with, with esports, but despite that, I mean, it's a huge industry. It's a huge ecosystem. I mean, Andy, can you give us an idea of what the actual scale of this thing looks like? Oh my goodness, Luke, it's so hard to draw parameters around this. And, and, it's, <laughs> uh, and it's partly because the industry's continually expanding. You mm. know, if you take, for example, last, I think it was last June or July, when Travis Scott created a performance within Fortnite. Now, how do you categorize the, the economic parameters around that as an esports event? Uh -huh. I mean, it's, it's, it has to do, I think the reason why people talk about uh, esports and gaming more widely as being bigger than film and, and music is because it's integrating these other sectors. And that is the one thing that I think people need to realize is that as we do more and more within gaming environments, more and more of that creative sector wants to come into that world. So yes, of course, last year was an exceptional situation where there were no Travis Scott concerts elsewhere that were happening. But when you drive people into that world through their interest in the music, and when you can create, you know, the sort of the 21st century version of the music video into this sort of live experience where the, the users can find themselves as characters within the video. I mean, it's just mind blowing, really, I think. And, and that's why it's a really hotly debated subject as to how, how big this is economically. But there's no controversy over whether it's absolutely enormous. And I think that that expansion is really what's fascinating people. The fact that we see 
organizations like like Populous. I mean, a big announcement uh, just yesterday, actually, this on the 23rd of February when this was announced, we saw a the announcement from Toronto of a new big esports stadium that's being designed by the architecture firm Populous, which also designed and has designed many of the hallmark arenas around the world over the last 20 years. So architects are turning their attention to esports to design new theatrical staging of events. And I think that is that is the broad picture around esports that, that is really transformative. I mean, that's the fascinating thing. Esports seems to be that weird space where cultures collide because traditional sports stars, actors, DJs, musicians, they're all investing heavily in e-gaming sports teams. So what do you think that really means for the future of this industry? Yeah, that's a great question because I remember seeing sort of Keanu Reeves talk about his sort of latest gaming experience. And Steve Aoki yes, and all of these guys. Was, yeah. And I think it for me, it comes down to the kind of creatives behind it. Um, the people that I know and work with that are excited about this world are all creators. You know, they're fascinated by by the realization of, of alternate worlds, and that's what really drives the the involvement. It's 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 quite different from what drives the players to be competitors. And I think, for me personally, that's it's the first part of that that's really fascinating. People trying to imagine new ways of interacting, new ways of of existing within our world, and and the gaming is allowing that. I mean, some great examples we see sort of on the horizon where companies like Sony and others are, are trying to create uh, and have applications patent applications already awarded to to create immersive virtual reality experiences of esports so rather than just watch them on a flat screen as we do still most of our content you can put the headset on and find yourself within the within the playing field effectively being able to take part in some way within that space and that for me is a big part of that journey it's one of the reasons why i think we've seen over the last few years kind of pop up vr shops in the high street where people can try out different experiences and it's i think because the technology is always changing you know if you bought an oculus headset three years ago you're really not using it anymore and i think the turnover of this technology means that the best way for people to experience it is by going to the kind of technology temples to engage with these experiences and it might be a gym it might be a theater but certainly that immersive interaction is i think at the heart of this I mean, that that seems to be a really interesting tension because do esports really need to be hosted in stadiums? Sure, they surely they could just be hosted in virtual worlds. It feels like there's about to be a fight between whether this the future of this space is going to be physical or if, whether it's going to be virtual. Well, a lot of people do feel strongly that the physical aspect of esports is huge, and we know already that esports events are able to you know fill out venues like Madison Square Gardens all around the world. These are big ticket experiences. And I think it's partly because people, spectators still want to see and be within that sort of proximity of their their, their idol, if you like. And then that sort of aspiration, I think, for the fan will always be there. There are some practical reasons why the physical space is also important. So trying to make sure that everyone is competing by the same terms and has the same equipment and everyone's got the same bandwidth and, and ping rates and so on. So those are some important reasons 
reasons to bring people together. But there's also, I think, some anxiety about, about how this may go in the future. One of the great examples of this is is the platform Zwift, which is this cycling platform. And if you if you go onto YouTube and, and Google sort of Zwift and live competitions, you'll see a whole range of staged events where you have competitors, competitors from around the world that are on their own bicycles, in their own bedrooms or garages or wherever it might be, but all located within this computer-generated version of a Tour de France sort of leg or something like that. And um, and I know that people that 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 see these online competitions are very anxious about their legitimacy and authenticity and, and making sure that there's no sort of digital doping taking place. Uh, but I think there's also a recognition that many of the sports that we produce are incredibly expensive to stage in the physical world. You think about the Tour de France, you've got to you know, close off roads, you've got to stage the thing across miles and, and it takes uh, a lot of investment. But if you can bring all those cyclists into one arena where they can all compete and you've got this multi-screen experience, which is realizing their performances in real time. It's an incredibly different proposition and exciting. I think that's what's really, for me, also fascinating about it is that we're beginning to see, and I think esports isn't the start of this, but it's where it's really innovating at the moment. We're seeing how the stadium experience is being mm. transformed by technology as well. Uh, that's been a slow burn, I would say. I remember back in London 2012 Olympic Games, they had these kind of interactive things where the audience could do stuff and it affects what's happening visually in the TV. And, and I think that's where we're seeing a restaging of the theatricality of sports, which is why I think that those boundaries are far greater than just competition. They have to do with the creation of, of new kinds of worlds. Well, you've so wonderfully described esports as a theatre of possibilities. So how do you feel esports is really going to inform the design of arenas and spaces in the future? And how have we already seen some new designs of these spaces influenced by the needs of uh, esports gamers? Well, I think at the moment we're seeing that really revolution beginning right now, and and certainly purpose-built esports arenas is is now becoming a thing. Uh, so we're seeing how designers, how uh, sort of content space creators are reorganizing the dimensions and parameters. If you think about a current football event where you might go to the stadium and it's pretty standard, it's not changed very much for for certainly decades, if not centuries, the arena's quite similar. But now we're seeing the integration of screen-based technology as a kind of intermediary of that experience. I mean, the great example was from the uh, esports opening ceremony of League of Legends in 2017, where we had this augmented reality dragon flying around the stadium. And of course, the way to watch that was through your mobile phone using an augmented reality application. And I think that aspect of of visualizing things that aren't there has really engaged people. We've seen a lot of AR applications take off in the last five years, perhaps. And um, and there's no real limits to it, I think. That's, that's partly what's interesting about it, is it's putting things into physical spaces digitally that transform that relationship. I mean, the great example from last year with the League of Legends final was that you had augmented reality dancers performing alongside physical dancers <laughs> in the stadium. I mean, that's just, uh, you know, it's perfect sort of, uh, I think, symbol of where we are as a society, where we're, we're wrestling with what those, that dichotomy of the physical experience and the increasing encroachment of the digital I mean, it's really hard in, in this day and age to talk about going back to stadium and physical experiences because of COVID-19. Do you, do you think COVID has, has impacted the growth of esports or in actual fact, do you think it's actually helped? 
I think it's helped in many ways to push the world of elite sports into the digital era. I think it's taken quite a long time for sports federations to figure out how to relate their physical activity to that increasingly digital world of the consumer. And we've seen so many great examples. I mentioned the Australian Grand Prix. We also saw um, a elite tennis tournament take place, the Mutua Madrid virtual tennis event last July, where Andy Murray and many other people were competing. Andy Murray won at the end, which I think is a bit fishy, <laughs> but nevertheless, you know, he was playing a computer game and it's given rise to a range of other, of other tennis sort of events setting up their own computer game version of it. We've seen basketball also emerge. These are quite niche games in the world of esports. They're not really hugely credible as titles, but they're doing something to bring those two worlds together. And I, you know, I remember back in 2013, you remember when Google Glass was around as this kind of <laughs> device that would allow you to mediate the digital and the physical. And I think we're seeing a lot more sports brands try to experiment with these technologies and perhaps bring themselves a bit closer to that world because they also realize that they are losing their spectators. You have to find new ways of innovating because there's so much competition now. It's so much harder to keep people's attention. So you have to find new routes to doing so. Well, it feels like every four years we have a sudden uh, impetus to innovate, and that's because of the Olympic Games. And, and you've written a lot about how the Olympic Games has continued to drive innovation in the digital space. So what do you think's next for a, for a gathering like that? Well, there is, I think, a huge and probably an inherent relationship between the modern Olympic Games and mm -hmm. the development of technology. If you look at the major sort of worldwide partners of the Olympic movement, we see huge companies like Intel, like Samsung, and, and many others that are, are really pushing the boundaries of what's possible technologically. A lot of this isn't always seen by the audiences and this sort of lays below the surface. I know that one of the things we're likely to see in Tokyo and in future games is kind of real time AI backed performance analysis to the point where if you think about a long jumper from the second they take off from the from the from the ramp we'll know whether they've broken a world record or not just by the data that we're seeing. And I think those aspects of what's taking place in the elite sports world is, is just hugely profound because it's also having an impact on how we sort of monitor and manage health more widely. So the integration of AI is certainly no stranger to the world of elite sports. We've already seen uh, press organizations experiment with uh, artificially intelligent journalist bots that are pushing out content during the games. And I think that's where there's a kind of, uh, I think what happened around sort of 2000 time is that many of those brands that were working with the world of sports began to see an opportunity to align their sort of showcasing of next generation technology alongside the showcasing of these athletic performances. I remember back in, in Pyeongchang in 2018 at the Winter Olympic Games in South Korea, you know, Samsung had its foldable mobile phone there. And it's, it's a moment where they sort of use it and treat it actually as a bit like a kind of international expo. So it's an environment that's where I think many brands are now aligning their own sort of trajectories alongside the, the Olympic Games as well. And it's partly because I think a lot of elite athletes rely on experimental, innovative technology to actually be better than others. And that aspect of it, I think, is crucial.
Well, you mentioned that that briefly, the idea of digital doping. So as we start to datafy athletes, uh, could having access to certain technologies, certain AI technologies, certain um, uh, wearable devices, could that actually help some athletes and hinder others? I mean, where is the tricky line here with regards to access to these sorts of uh, uh, innovations? I think certainly it could. I think that it's probably been that way for quite a long time. I mean, when you think about the rise of of sports science and technology in the 1970s and 80s and how a lot of the concern certainly was around sort of medical doping, which is the sort of thing that's, that's firmly banned by the world of sports. But for as long as I can remember, there have been many other examples of technology that have allowed athletes to push the boundaries. Some, some sort of controversial examples include things like hyperbaric chambers that simulate different levels of, of altitude within an environment. These are on the borderline. But I think with, with new digital technologies, we're seeing, a, I guess, a proliferation of these sorts of things. But for me, if you're working in elite sports, finding a way into relationships with technology companies is a way of you safeguarding your future. If you don't find some partnerships that's really difficult to make sure that you can engage with your audiences but also allow them to innovate the great thing about zwift as a sort of immersive gaming environment for cyclists is that you can do it yourself you can buy these platforms you can even compete alongside the elite athletes and i know that certainly one of the companies that's been doing great work in this area a company called virtually live which is a sort of virtual reality experience in real time of Formula One racing is providing ghost racing experiences where you can enter your console, set it up and off you go at the same time as the drivers and have that spectator experiences whilst competing alongside the drivers. And that I think is a big part of this future. I mean, all of this feels like, uh, why will we need sports people in the future? And by sports people, I mean human sports People, because if you can datafy all of their ability to to perform in these sports, if you can understand through through metrics how they may or may not perform, surely you can just remove the sports people and simulate the entire game. So why isn't that trajectory one that we're we're pursuing heavily? I think it's a great and really deep philosophical question that you just asked <laughs> because it gets to the heart of what is it we're fascinated with when we watch people play games. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, know, I remember there's lots of controversial debates about about chess, and if 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 the game is played perfectly, then whoever is white will win because algorithmically you have that advantage. But it's but I guess a bit like I mean the yeah it reminds me back when Gary Kasparov was uh, made his documentary Game Over, which is where he reflects back on that experience of playing IBM's Deep Blue, where he feels that there was a kind of ghost in the machine. And we know that IBM was working with some grandmasters to influence the program after each game. But I think there's that feeling of of there, there being something sort of quintessential human that's about game that we still want to see and that we haven't yet found replicated by a computer simulation. Now, whether that that's possible to get to that point, I think is a really open question. But I think what's likely well before we get there is that we'll see many of these activities being transformed by technology to make them into something completely different. So if you think about the current number of elite sports that are part of the Olympic program, I think that many of those won't stay in their present form 
for the next 50 years. They'll be modified by technology. They'll be transformed. I mean, even, even things like uh, fencing. I know that one of the aspirations for Tokyo for this year's Olympic Games was to bring sort of data visualization into the broadcasting environment so that, you know, if you watch fencing and you're not a fencer, it's quite hard to know what's going on. It's quite hard to see what's going on. And so by using quite creative visualizations, like rendering uh, a sort of insights into the heart rate of the performers to get a sense of how they're feeling, all these are ways of remaking the sport so that more aspects of the humanity of the player are being more articulated by the technology. And I think there's a lot of a scope to develop more in that direction before we kind of turn to technology to... And I, I guess we've seen things like robot wars where there's only so much we're interested in mm. the kind of battle between the machines. We want to make sure there's some sort of human contest going on still behind it. <laughs> you, you want to see the guy who spent six months <laughs> in his basement designing the thing cry exactly. as he watches it fly across the stadium and explode into pieces. I mean, that's really that's really what we're watching that for. But Andy, do you think we'll see AI design sports? We'll see the sorts of competitions where we pit AI against AI in these kind of perverse Turin experiments meets competitive gaming environments and we'll watch AIs almost do weird versions of uh, cockfighting almost to just see AIs <laughs> compete and we'll find that oddly interesting. Well, I, th I think we will, Luke. I mean, I think we both sort of feel that way about this. I mean, I've seen some great examples of AI-backed literary works, of poetry that have been created by machines. And I think there's your sort of first sign that, that in fact, the machine can do a a sort of a good enough job to actually compel us to want to engage with the content. I think in some respects, the critique of, of the late 20th, 20th century is that so much of our kind of cultural and creative sector has become this sort of manufactured world where, where in fact, a lot of what we see come off the production line and enter the music charts is, is perhaps a bit too mechanical and a bit too samey. I mean, it's, it goes back to this idea that all pop music, all pop songs can be reduced to four chords. I suppose in that respect, I think AI and the possibility of designing innovative, creative machines is in fact a richer way of thinking about creativity. I know that within artistic practice and indeed sort of music composition, the integration of experimentation of artificial intelligence is pushing mm -hmm. the boundaries of what we think of as being musically possible. And, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the, what surrounds that esports world is a whole range of people that want to create new things. They want to push the boundaries of innovation and see what's possible. And it's that experimentation that I think really underpins everything. I mean, we've seen virtual pop stars and we've seen virtual influencers. Are, are we on the precipice of seeing a, a virtual gaming rock star? Well, we've already seen in the last 12 months already the, the creation of, of the world's first sort of AI news anchor. So coming out of mm -hmm. Korea where there's now, and what's really interesting about that is I saw the launch of this and uh, you had the, it's not just a sort of random avatar. It's actually an AI version of an existing news Person. presenter. And I think, <laughs> you know, <laughs> how do you feel about that? Who's getting the paycheck now? That's what that's yeah. my question. <laughs> because I think that, um, so I think we're already there in many respects where, where we can 
almost find it impossible to distinguish between the computer-generated version of a person and the actual biological version. So I think we're moving into a realm where it's becoming increasingly imperceptible. And for those of, for those that own the sort of the content and the platforms and the products at this point in time, you know, there's so much more money they can make by, by exploiting this. But I think it does sort of push us to think about what is it that we want out of our lives that keeps mm-hmm. us kind of connected through these experiences there's a i think a sea change in in evaluating performance creativity uh, intellectual prowess and achievements that we're, we're seeing off the back of of ai certainly but a whole range of technological transformations too i mean a great example for me was just in 2019 i think it was the um the drone racing league worked with a computer game developer to create a drone experience a computer game where you could use your drone controller to operate Mm -hmm. the drone within the computer game. And of course, you see a transfer of those skills that are developed in the gaming experience into the real world of piloting drones. I mean, it's getting towards the kind of Ender's Game scenario where the gaming interactions are training us for a whole range of things, both good and bad. I mean, has anybody got got it right in in terms of science fiction? We we look at Ready Player One. You've just mentioned Ender's Game. There, are any of those visions of what the future of gaming may look like as presented on the on the big screen or in science fiction books? Are any of those appealing to you? I think both of those that you just mentioned are absolutely appealing. I think for me, what's really <laughs> what's really interesting. I remember when I was starting off as a PhD student, I was writing about genetics, and um, someone told me that I must sort of read Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, mm-hmm. and and I was anxious to, about doing so because I sort of felt that once I've read it. I can't unread it anymore. And you sort of worry that your vision of the future is entirely framed by those ideas. I think in some respects, those augmented reality or virtual reality sports that we're seeing emerge are informed by those visions of virtual reality that we see writers having created over the last, well, century, let's face it, really. And yet I also go back to this sort of fundamental principle that that we have always lived within a sort of virtual reality. Our consciousness, the ability to sort of think visually, imaginatively, is an entry into that world. And then of course, that's partly why it's so compelling. It's partly why, you know, people talk about their dreams when they wake up, because there's something about the experience of this other world that we find fascinating. Maybe it's because we're so sort of constrained by being us. We can't step out of ourselves and be other people that in fact we desire to perform other sorts of roles occupy different spaces and that unreality of sport is a great example of that because you know if you are a boxer you can go out and punch people in the head which you can't really do in the real world (laughs) (laughs) well i mean there's there's, that's an interesting point actually because (laughs) what compels people to want to be a gamer and want to watch gaming it always fascinates me that these tick titch Twitch, Twitch, um, uh, folks, Twitch, Twitch, folks, and then they manage to gather these massive audiences of people who are are watching over their shoulder them play games. So, what is the psychology of all of this? Why is this so popular? Well, I think it's different for the players versus the spectators. And obviously anyone that's ever been a spectator has always thought about Mm. being a participant and really good at what they're interested in, whether it's sports or music or whatever it might be. We all sort of aspire to having those kind of creative capabilities or, or or maybe just the desire to sort of 
explore more aspects of ourselves. You know, I'd love to be a singer, Luke. I mean, I'm never going to be. I'm never going <laughs> well, to now's speak. your chance, Andy. Uh. <laughs> but, but I think that that's where our sort of consumption of music allows us to occupy those worlds uh-huh. in, in some respects. I think certainly with uh, platforms like Twitch, they're doing so well because of that social experience. So with the integration Mm -hmm. of a kind of social communal experience to games, participation is central to it. And it's not so different from what happens with, with other events. You know, you go to a sports event, you go to a gig and you, you socialize and talk about it with people. And it's that communal resharing of the experience that gives it the kind of historic memorable aspect to it. I think that what's interesting actually is that, when you think about it, most of what's happening in the esports and gaming world is still quite outside of the mainstream mechanisms by which that's sort of orchestrated. We we don't see on the evening news any news about esports. We don't see in the newspapers. It's not covered. And I think that's also sort of indicative of just what's being transformed at the moment. And these are not, these are actually quite worrying things because at the moment, we see a huge number of journalists who are being excluded from these worlds reporting them because, because mm-hmm. of course, the brand is all controlled by you know, media managers and people that want to make sure that their product is framed in the right way. But actually, these are historic, newsworthy, sort of culture-defining experiences, and we need to make sure that they are treated sort of as historical works. It's I often sort of think about the state of of esports as being comparable to sort of the film industry a hundred years ago. We're still at that embryonic stage, and so much more is possible, which is why I think it's also incumbent upon us who are working in the world of esports to to keep opening the boundaries around this. There's a lot of people that want to sort of say this is esports, this isn't esports, but you have to keep quite open minded about this because it's still being redefined, and it's being redefined around the populations of players as well. Well, one of the big problems in esports is inclusivity and diversity, mm-hmm. and that's partly because a lot of attention is often focused on a small number of titles, and there are so many other competitive gaming experiences that are out there. If you go to Asia, the sort of mobile esports world is really booming. It's much more diverse than what we see over in the West often, and so... I think being open-minded as to what this world might look like is really crucial, not least because so many people, Luke, just think esports is absolutely boring (laughs) and and don't want to get anywhere near it. So I think you have to sort of keep people aware of the fact that all these interactions and through films like Ready Player One, you can see that these immersive technologies are redefining humanity. And that for me is the big sell on why this is so interesting. What was fascinating to me was that esports does have such a rich history. I hadn't realised it went all the way back to the the 1980s. I mean, could you reveal a little bit about that history, Andy? It is. And actually, one of the things that's really interesting is if you look back, I think the the first official sort of computer game to be associated with the Olympics goes back to LA 1984. And it's a really simple sort of athletics (laughs) game. But these worlds are intertwined. And actually, that's one of the things that's, I think, really useful to draw upon because there is often some sort of antagonism between sort of elite sports and their competition formats and the gaming world and their desire to pursue their own routes. But actually, there is so much common ground between these two worlds. And competitive gaming, I think, still draws on some of those principles that we see flourish and define the sports world. I've noticed in the UK, we've had this uh, BBC TV series about esports, the first sort of TV series that we've seen in the UK on, on esports. And when you watch it, 
you see quite clearly that the culture of competition and the sort of ethos, the way of talking even to each other as competitors and broadcasting events is so similar to sports that there's a huge amount of common ground with the staging of it. And I think along with that goes a massive responsibility to the young people that are pursuing these careers, not least because, you know, if you are an esports player, you're burnt out by the, by 22. I mean, it's a hugely intense experiences at the best of times. And I think that there's a lot more work to be done there to make sure that we safeguard young players, but also help them transition from competition into a career. And that's a, a massive sort of responsibility. I feel certainly. So how do you feel this this whole space is going to change? You mentioned representation there very briefly. I mean, it does feel that e-gaming is very uh, male-oriented, but do you think the gender representation inside of esports is is about to change? Well, I would hope so. I mean, I've, as you mentioned earlier, I worked a lot with the Olympic movement and it's taken a hundred years to get to a point where it's really addressed a lot of its uh, sort of gender inequalities and not just around participation at the competitive competitive level, but also at the leadership level too. And I think that's where we need to see a lot more take place. I mean, it is a long game, Luke. I think it's not an overnight thing. It, it goes Unintended. Back- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it has to do with, you know, who's working on game development, who's entering into game design courses, who's operating around that ideation space that leads them to be the sort of figureheads of the industry. And I think that there is some evidence within esports that it's doing a bit better than the gaming industry more widely in terms of representation, but it's not often at the competitor level. So I think there's a huge need to understand what's going on, to understand why people feel excluded. And there's lots of discussions about things like sort of hyper-masculinity, toxicity within esports, things that are very similar to the world of sports, incidentally. And that's, again, where I think a lot can be learned to understand how to address these things. But it's central, I think, to, I mean, we can't wait 100 years before we get the sort of equality we, we see in the world of, of sports. We have to we have to act now and really make this a concerted effort to both understand, but also to correct do, do you think the, the culture of gaming, the, the dynamics of gaming are bleeding out into the real world? Some people have looked at what's happening on social media and the rise of conspiracy theory and, and QAnon and the folks who were um, going and, and storming the Capitol in the US. They look at that as a form of LARPing, almost like gaming dynamics have suddenly been co-opted and, and brought into the real world. Are you beginning to see that in, in the work that you're looking yet? I think certainly we are at a point in, in history where the expansion of mistrust into our sort of everyday lives has become mm-hmm. all-encompassing. I think it's it's been quite present in, in the whole of human history to have to deal with misrepresentation, misdirection, and certainly misinformation. I think that what we've seen over the last certainly five years, but maybe a bit longer, maybe with the growth and the sort of incursion of, of social media into our daily lives in such profound ways, we've seen alongside that a growing sort of difficulty in, in trying to understand truth. And, and gaming, I think, is, and it's interesting because I think that Gaming is is a sort of a double-edged sword. We we seek to experience the joyfulness of play that games provide, Mm. but also we know that we can't spend too long in that world because we neglect all the other stuff that needs our attention. So I think 
we have to try to find a healthy balance between those those sorts of lies. I mean, one of the great examples for me, which uh, I oh, I still love talking about it, is from a few years ago now. But you may remember the mobile running application Zombies Run, which is <laughs> yes. uh, which I I mean I I tried it a good number of times, and this is a, a, an app where you download it to your mobile phone, you press play, you find yourself as a character in a zombie apocalypse film or story, and essentially you have to run away from zombies, and that's when you get your exercise. But what was beautiful about it for me, and I know that Margaret Atwood was involved with some of the scripting for it, but you have the fusion of creativity, of, of, of narrative, of storytelling into what otherwise may be for many people a quite boring physical activity. And I I do quite a bit of running, uh, but I've never been a runner. And I've always been someone that listens to podcasts whilst I run. I kind of get my catch up whilst I run. So I think that mm-hmm. what we're seeing is an expansion of that sort of gaming experience into other worlds. And that I think is, there's a lot to be said for that. But I think um, it's crucial that we think about these things as sort of theatres, as storytelling experiences. And hopefully that will allow people to sort of find their way into physical activity and perhaps more effectively negotiate these sort of difficult boundaries between reality and unreality. I, I always love talking to you, Andy, because you're such a, a, an enthusiastic techno optimist. And I have to ask you about the far future of this space, because how do you think wearables, insidables, embeddables, ingestibles, how do you think all of those emerging technologies will soon become part of the e-gaming ecosystem in the near future? Well, let's be clear about one thing. A lot of that stuff's already happening. It's already apparent that mm-hmm. the military have for nearly a decade now been using gaming as a tool for recruitment and indeed mm-hmm. training. So the the sort of vision that we see in Ender's game is is not a fiction at all. It's it's incredibly very close to reality. Now, the question is how we feel about the particular sort of uh, manifestation of that. You could perhaps argue that there's something a little bit worrisome about using people's passions to lure them into career paths, which of course every industry does. But there's something perhaps more fundamentally worrisome about the fact that in 2015, uh, the Russians developed a tank where the interface was modeled on a PlayStation controller. And and yet I think we have to also recognize that the for many of these things, whether you're controlling a tank, a drone, or a, a character on a computer game screen, we're talking really about uh, our vision for sort of a, a seamless simulation of our world. Now, I think what's interesting about gaming is that it's clear that gamers don't want a seamless, seamless simulation. Simulation, you know, you don't want to have to train for three years before you get to play the the sort of airline or or spacecraft flying game uh-huh. and have that experience. We don't want it perfectly modelled. We just want it modelled well enough. Uh, but I think that what's also apparent is that those skills that are being used to nurture the best gamers in the world are skills that have transferability into a whole range of other practices, both good and bad. So I am an optimist, Luke. And uh, and I think for me, uh, the, the, the optimist needs to appreciate that these things are, are not sort of one or the other. We will certainly see the exploitation of esports for a whole range of practices that we may well be very alarmed about, but also for lots of great things as well. So I think that what's really important is that we sort of expose each of those things. And if we are concerned about, I mean, if it turns out, Luke, that the best way to nurture the most effective drone pilot 
mm. is to create computer games that develop those skills so that when the players become 17, 18 years old, they are optimized for drone operation. What do we do? Um, you might, I think what we can do is alert people to that. We can alert people to the fact these games are not just games. They are, in fact, leading people into certain career paths and then allow them to make choices about whether they're comfortable with that or not. But it's that's the first step for me is exposing those, those things that are happening. One of the most fascinating presentations I saw on gaming was at the artist studio Blast Theory, and an artist was talking about gaming and simulation and saying, look, these things aren't realistic simulations. They're nowhere close, because if we had a realistic simulation of warfare in something like Call of Duty, uh, then basically there'd be no respawn. You know, as soon as you're <laughs> shot, that's it. Game over. You would have paid $60 and you have one chance, and it would fundamentally change the dynamic of the game. And I think I saw this presentation in around 2011 or 2012, just when uh, Call of Duty had just launched multiplayer. And he was talking about how those dynamics would change. If you had a multiplayer game where one shot and that's it, no restart, uh, no respawn, what you'd actually have is people camping out in trenches for the entirety <laughs> of the game, scared to run through that game and, and shoot. And we've seen a multitude of artists use gaming as a space to explore some of these uh, some of these themes and Andy my favorite book in the entire world is human futures art in the age of oh. uncertainty I, I know you've it's my bible and it was my bible during my undergraduate for for how artists are exploring the world of bioart but how are artists exploring the world of gaming what are some of the most exciting examples you've seen of this I mean, I think it's really interesting to, to look at that relationship. And of course, artists are central to, to game design and have been for many years. I think one of the, one of the most interesting examples is a bit like um, that digital uh, healthcare worker that I mentioned earlier. I've seen a lot of people working in the gaming space that are trying to explore the creation of virtual people. And in that respect, I think they are asking us to consider how we see ourselves and think about what's crucial about our humanity. I remember you know, a great example from, it was shown in fact in Liverpool, which is the Foundation for Art and Creative Technology. I think this was about five years ago. And I forget the, what the name was called, but essentially it was a VR experience that you, you had with somebody else and you each wore a headset and you then found yourself seeing the perspective from the other person's viewpoint. And so you would then coordinate your movements so that when you raised your hands, mm -hmm. they would see your hands in front of them. And it, it allowed you to see that what we were talking about earlier, about this possibility of occupying the perspective of another person. And I think that is... That is often what sort of game design is really about. And artists have been, I think, at the heart of that. And at same, equally, I think, at the heart of really pushing the boundaries of the ethics of that too. So how we can try to um, allow people to see the impacts of of this simulation. I mean, you, you mentioned sort of Call of Duty, but uh, and, and the idea that if you're shot, you kind of, that's it for you. But, you know, let's also look at it the other way. If you shoot somebody, you've got a few, you know, a good lifetime of, of trauma that you face as a result of having done that. And I think that uh -huh. that's, that's when you think about what game design entails, you know, how do you not engage people with the consequence of those virtual actions? There's a great 
a great film that was made a few years ago called 5,000 Feet is the Best, which you might have seen in sort of art house cinemas. And it's a film that sort of speaks to the experience of a drone operator who, of course, undertakes their sort of combat from a distance. They're, they're, they're deploying mm-hmm. weapons without having to be within the sort of field of, of, of battle. And it gets into the sort of psychological kind of challenge of of the juxtaposition between pressing buttons that kill people and then going to a Starbucks and ordering a coffee 10 minutes later. And I think trying to find ways of of creating emotional gaming experiences is is perhaps the pinnacle. And I would say that, again, if you think about what sports journalists have tried to do for the last century, which is to allow us that emotional experience, to tell the story of what it means and what it feels like to, to be that person, that's where we can see the future of this. And I think there's a great deal that we can do to explore that. I mean, imagine you had the capability of increasing your heart rate at the same time as the heart rate increasing for the performer as they're doing it. I mean, there you have a really different way of simulating the experience, but I would argue in a way that allows you to more fully appreciate what's going on and just figuring out what's going on is so important. Mm, that's that's that weird boundary between what is simulation and what is gaming. And and, and listening to you there, I'm reminded of uh, Blood Sports. If you ever saw this Kickstarter campaign, so two Canadians, I, I want to believe they're artists, but I think they were completely serious. We're trying to redesign ways in which we could do blood donation. And what they had was a device that every time you were shot in a computer game, it would basically take the blood from your body up to about a pint, so they could actually wow. get a, a donation of a pint of blood. Now, obviously it didn't get Kickstarter funded um, for some obvious reasons, but, but those are those are some interesting discussions that we, we need to have over well, what is it we're trying to do here? Are we trying to simulate reality or are we trying to allow gaming to be a true gaming experience? I'm also reminded of, of artist Joseph, uh, uh, I think it's LaPage, who's done a, a wonderful art project whereby every time someone is shot in Call of Duty, he displays just above their head, the name and the date of death of a real soldier in the Iraq war. So, you know, there's ways to grok these environments to to really make us think about the way in which we're navigating the, the real world. That's absolutely fascinating. A good friend of mine is a multi gold medal Olympic champion in shooting. <laughs> and and he's written, I think he's published it already, but he's written a book on meditation. And he was explaining to me just a couple of weeks ago that shooting in Olympic sports is really not about shooting at all. It's mm-hmm. about understanding your body and your mind. And so, for example, the moment when they pull the trigger in Olympic shooting, they they time it with their heartbeat. So he's listening to his heartbeat. And as soon as it's, it's, it's beated, he then pulls a trigger. So there's an incredible sort of profound sense of, of kind of complete holistic appreciation mm. of, of the physicality of, of themselves when they're in the act of what externally just looks like somebody shooting a gun. And yet when you get, and I think sports are often like that. I think competitions often like that. I think dances like that. I think many sort of pursuits that involve us sort of stepping outside of the the humdrum reality of the day-to-day are a bit like this, but maybe so too is reading and 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 even just imagining that that it's trying to think about ways of of recreating ourselves. I mean that's I think what all these practices are really about, inviting us to explore aspects of ourselves that 
that are maybe sort of unfamiliar to us that allow us to to sort of take risks about who we are and and see where we want to go and i you know i think of how many sort of artists and creators um are remarkable on stage but when you sort of hear them talk about themselves they're incredibly introverted and and anxious about being around people so i think that even as a spectator or of a gamer, it is about that exploration of being somebody else and the emotional connection that we feel to occupying that space, which is which is I think why it's so compelling. And it's and it's not just about the competition in itself; it's about all these other things. I mean, the other thing I love about you, Andy, is that someone who features quite heavily in your work and your research is Ethan, your <laughs> ten-year-old son. I'll always remember the presentation you gave when oh, he must have been maybe just a year old, and you were talking about longevity technology, and, and you sat him on your knee and asked the audience whether Ethan was um, enhanced in any way, shape, or form. And I do have to ask: Is Ethan a gamer? Are you encouraging him to become an esports player? Are you seeing the millions of dollars that these kids are making and going, you know what, let's get Ethan in front of the PlayStation 5. Not nearly as much as you might think. I mean, uh, <laughs> as you will know, he has quite a balanced lifestyle. He has real sort of, I mean, not completely fixed limits on gaming activity. Mm -hmm. He does have a, he does have a sort of trading system in the house where if he goes out for a run, he gets an equivalent amount of time for gaming. If he breaks a record with his run, he gets double that time. So we've got some sort of nudging behavior to see that relationship as, as quite integrated. And I suppose I grew up in that way too. I was big into sports as a kid big into gaming as well and felt that there was a good balance between those worlds, which is why I suppose I don't feel anxious about gaming. I think as long as you do manage that balanced lifestyle, then it's all good. And I think I'm also of the view and speaking to so many esports players around the world, you know, there, there's ways in which their their training within the game environments has impacts on their own sort of mental acuity for a mm. whole range of things they do, whether it's training to be a doctor or a lawyer or just being more creative. So I'm I'm convinced that there's a lot of creativity that goes alongside with being a gamer and occupying those sort of creative open-ended worlds. And uh, and yet, to be honest, the games that Ethan plays are absolutely boring and I want to get him onto some really good titles, but he's just not interested. I wonder if there's a generational thing, though. I mean, what sort of games are that next generation playing? I know Among Us became really popular and I, I don't understand it as a 30-year-old. It doesn't make any sense to me. And yet it's massively popular amongst that next generation. It is. I think that Among Us did very well or was still doing very well because it becomes a sort of communal experience. I played a lot with my family. We all sort of played together. I mean, Ethan's playing, Ethan spends most of his time watching streamers stream their content. So there's a wow. great game called Ark Survival Evolved, which is a kind of, you know, you're chasing sort of dinosaurs around the world and taming them and, and harvesting resources and that sort of thing. And he just loves watching a really good player play that game because in order for him to get to that level would take hours and days of his mm. life and, and a lot of my money to actually purchase <laughs> these things. So, so actually you can watch a gamer who's got a lot further and has achieved a lot more and get a lot out of that experience. And I think that the worry I have, I suppose, and it's not a simple sort of one to resolve is between is the tension between the consumption and the creation. You know, I'd love him to be, thinking about designing games, character development, those sorts of things. But a lot of what he's being driven towards certainly is the consumption side of it. And I think finding mm. that balance is really crucial.
So if anybody's been inspired by the conversation that we've just had and they want to learn more about esports, where can they go to discover more information on this new form of gaming? Well, there's two organizations that I work with that are doing fantastic work, I think. One is the British Esports Association, which is a lot of resources for parents, for young players that are really trying to develop and innovate within this world. And also career paths within it as well. I think that's one of the things to realize that if you are someone that's looking to enter the creative and cultural industries, whether it's media, sport, music, then if you keep an eye on what's happening in esports, you'll have a sense of where the technology trends are taking your industry. So that's worth having a look at, especially. Mm -hmm. I also work with the Global Esports Federation, which is trying to build a kind of esports agenda around a whole range of global priorities, working closely with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals to see how gaming can be a route into sustainable um, innovation cultures in places where there isn't even a lot of sort of technological infrastructure. So I'm very sort of um, committed to the idea that that gaming is a route into sustainable innovation as well, and I think it's 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 built on that passion for playing games that allows people then a entry into a lot of skill development. And you can think about this in quite simple ways. If you are in a place where there's limited infrastructure for even schools or hospitals and things like that, if you can create sort of gaming spaces through a range of sort of sponsorship opportunities, then you can create an infrastructure that then can be used for so many other things, whether it's training people, educating them, or deploying sort of technological solutions into places with limited technological means. So I think we'll see a lot more space opening up in that direction. The Global Esports Federation has been working with the United Nations ITU over the last year to talk about gaming for good. I think we'll see a lot more in that direction. So I think that's something that's really a space to watch for the next two years. Andy Mir, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I just want to thank you for being on the Futures Podcast. Thanks so much, Luke. Great to be here and great to talk to you as well. Thank you to Andy for showing us how the world of sports is set to be transformed by gaming technology. You can find out more by purchasing his book, Sport 2.0, Transforming Sports for a Digital World, available now from the MIT Press. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode or follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.